Imitation is intuitive. Imitation is intuitive. I mean, where would Luke Skywalker be without Obi-Wan and Yoda? Where would the Kung Fu Panda be without Master Wu Gui? Imitation is intuitive. And to turn to matters of perhaps lesser importance for some of you, um, if you follow, follow any major business organization on Twitter, for example, like the Harvard Business Review, or uh, let's say Forbes magazine, that organization, we know too there that constantly they're always talking about mentorship, always talking about leadership and Coaching, for example, is all the rage. So Forbes magazine came out with a recent online article on the importance of finding a mentor. Someone that you can look to for knowledge, wisdom, someone that you can imitate. And this article went on to give the following, you know, pretty good advice uh, in terms of worldly advice, career advice. And and this is what uh, they encourage for all future leaders. Number one, find a you in one year. Find a you-in-one-year mentor, right? someone who's going to help you get to where you want to be in the next year. right? Find that mentor, be mentored by them. Second point, they say go on and find a five-years mentor, basically a short-term mentor. you got the immediate mentor, a year. you got the short-term mentor, you got five years, someone that you want where you want to go to be in five years. And then lastly, thirdly, find a career mentor, Somebody who can shepherd you, somebody you can imitate over the long haul of your career. That's a long-term mentor. You know, it's good wisdom in the world if you're hoping to grow in your career. Whether you are serving coffee or whether you are working at Google, finding a mentor is in your best interest, isn't it? And to many of us, it is, in fact, intuitive. But what is more intuitive than finding and imitating a mentor for us as humans, is imitating our Creator. That is far more important than imitating a, an earthly member, a career mentor, right? I mean, most of us look at careers as something that we actually want to get out of eventually. And yet even that has so much importance. And here, our passage this morning from Ephesians 4 points us to the fact that we ought to be imitating our Creator. Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 5, verse 2. You can go ahead and turn there with me right now. We're picking up once again in our series to the book of Ephesians, written by a man named the Apostle Paul, charged to lay the foundation of the church. And this letter was written sometime in the early 60s to a church that he himself had helped to plant or to see begin. It's found on page 978 if you're using the Black Bibles there right in front of you. The main point from today's sermon is that with God as our Father, we are to imitate Him. With God as our Father, we are to imitate Him. I'll go ahead and read 25 to 5, 2. 4, 25 to 5, 2. It begins there, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Main point for you Christians, with God as our Father, we are to imitate him. Christians are called and designed to imitate God. If you're taking notes, this could be the first point. Christians are called to design and imitate God. Look there at 5.1. I think 5.1 is really the headline for this section right here. 5.1. Therefore, he's kind of summarizing all of these commands and exhortations. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, mentorship in... Kung Fu Panda is one thing, but all you have to do is see how children possess this innate desire to imitate their parents, and you see that there's something far greater than something that gives birth, something that takes birth and takes life out of the product of imagination. So if I come out, you know, let's say if I come out down the stairs, ready to, ready to be dressed, ready to start my day, and, and I have a hat on. I've recently found a hat that I thought was lost, and I've been wearing it. And so, Jer- so uh, Owen, who's only three years old, he will follow me in my exact footsteps. So if I come out wearing a hat, he will too want to wear a hat. And he does so in the cutest way. In that childlike, innate desire to imitate parents, we see a reflection here of how the Christian is to imitate our Heavenly Father, and even how you non-Christian are to imitate your Creator. From this verse, 5.1, we see that God's spiritual children are called and designed to imitate our spiritual father. And in order to embrace the call, right, this, in 5.1, this is a, a call to imitate God, therefore be imitators of God, is the command. For us to embrace this command to imitate, we have to understand that God has designed it so that we, his children, are to imitate him. Now, if we don't grasp design and we just go for looking at the command, all really we're going to be left with in Christianity, in terms of these exhortations, is a little bit more than moralism. Practicing good works as if it were salvation, being moralistic, moralist, you know, you can be good and not be a Christian. Or we're left with legalism, so practicing good works in order to get salvation. Moralism, legalism, that's what happens basically if you Forget the fact that we have been designed to imitate our Father. So you, Christian, have been designed to imitate God. Did you notice in 5.1 the reason why we are to imitate God and pursue holiness? What does it say there? It is because we are beloved of God. Right? It says, imitate God as beloved children. It's fascinating, you know, in the Christian life, many of us, we grow up thinking, oh yeah, you know, of course we're to pursue holiness, of course we're to pursue uh, purity. But it's never because we have been loved by God, or it's oftentimes not associated with because we have been loved by God. It's oftentimes associated with some sort of wrong thinking that God is going to throw his children into hell if we don't obey these particular things, or once again, we actually earn salvation by being good. But here he says, that's not what you're supposed to do. He says, you imitate God because you are beloved of God. 
because God has moved towards you in love. The fact that we are God's beloved, you know, it speaks not only of God's love for us, but the Christian's state of being, doesn't it? It speaks not only of the fact that God loves us, but it speaks of the Christian's very state of being in relationship with God. So if you are a wife, let's just think about human, human relationships here. If you are a wife, and you are the wife of a thoroughly committed husband, a thoroughly loving husband, a passionate husband, a sacrificial husband, you are your husband's beloved. And that wife, right, you might feel loved, you will feel comforted, you will then feel free to love in return, right? To pursue that same, that that love in that relationship, uh, you will delight in doing those things. And that speaks of the state of your relationship with your husband. So for that wife, there is delight in the husband, there is delight in the relationship, and you say, I am his beloved. So it is with the Christian to God. The love of God is crucial in the book of Ephesians, and this really is what undergirds all of these practical purity, holiness exhortations. So if you look over chapter 1, verse 4, you see there, love shows up right there. Let's look at verse 3 for context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, it says, he predestined us. So right there, okay, if you think about the the, the train tracks of God's grace that stems from eternity past before the creation of the world, even there, God's first move is in love towards those who don't deserve this love. And then you turn over to Ephesians 2, verse 4. Speaking of how all men are sinners and saved by God's grace and His holiness and His mercy and His love, it says there, but God being rich in mercy, right, when we deserved punishment when we deserved hell for rebelling against God it says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us what does he do even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in Jesus Christ and then in Ephesians 5 we have this this fantastic passage here about how husbands are to love their wives and and Paul encouraging the husbands you know he's looking for some sort of great example the standard of love uh, that husbands are to pursue Where does he go to? He goes to Jesus Christ's love for the church. So if you look over at 525, we see it again. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians also talks about how we as Christians have learned Christ in our passage that we looked at last week in chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. It speaks there about how we've learned this Christ and his love. It speaks about how we've heard Christ and his love, and we were taught in Christ, and now we are to grow up into him who is our head. And we as his people shine forth his wonderful character to the watching world, his glory, his holiness, his purity, and his love. So when Jesus saves us, he not only forgives us of our sins, he brings about 
a lasting heart change. And so our old sinful selves have died, so to speak, and our new selves in Christ live. Thus, Paul says we are to put off, as we saw last week, and then to put on the new self in Jesus Christ. So this here is a natural byproduct of what happens when God, the standard of perfection and holiness and righteousness and love, commits himself to loving sinful things. He, in all of his purity and all of his holiness and all of his love, when he sets his love upon a people, it naturally works to bring about that same purity and holiness and righteousness in the thing that he loves. It's a purifying love. And so when we Christians read there in 5.1, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, well, then we know we are to grow up into him. We are to live secure in his love, changed by his love, and free to love, and say, I, we, are God's beloved. And so he works in us to do the very things that he is known to do. We follow, we walk in the very ways that our Father walks in, because shoot, you know, He is our Father, is He not? He is our Father, and we are indeed His beloved. You know, as Paul calls Christians to imitate God as God's beloved children, in many ways, you know what he's doing? He's just calling us to live as God's family is designed to live. It's just what God's family does. So many of us are going to be joining our families for, you know, the holidays, Thanksgiving, or maybe joining even other families for the holidays, even on Thanksgiving and on Thursday. You know, and we're going to be joining these families. And sometimes, you know, these gatherings, as I mentioned before, are a little challenging. Sometimes they're, they're full of delight. And, you know, we go and experience some of the quirkiness of families. And, you know, you got that uncle or whatever. Or maybe they're thinking that about you. It's just what the family does. For me, it's just what the youngs do. Well, the same thing here for when it comes to Christians. For God's family. It's just what Christians do. As God's beloved, we are to imitate him. We're to be known for doing something. So there, we have been designed to imitate God. Saved by him, right? He reconciles us to himself. He reconciles us to one another. And then now, we have been charged to live as God's children live. Holy, pure, righteous, saved by the blood of Jesus, secure by his blood. So the next point, what does it actually look like to imitate him? Look there in verse 25. What does it actually look like to imitate him? Verse 25, let me just summarize. Don't lie, but speak the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Then you look at verses 26 to 27. To summarize, don't be sinfully angry, but then expose, uh, don't be sinfully angry and, and therefore expose the church to danger. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Verse 28, to summarize, it says, don't steal, but work hard and be generous. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And then 29 and 30, don't use your speech to tear down, but then use it to build up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then 31, don't be kind, but be loving. Look at 31, therefore be imitators of God, or sorry, 31, 
which reads, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, you guys have heard those commands so many times, haven't you? All these things that you're supposed to do, the Ten Commandments that you maybe or may not have memorized, yet those things that undergird your very ethic. We understand that God calls us to do these things, and so we probably want to take these things, these commands, and then go and work on them on our own, right? But you know what the common thread is in all of these commands, these exhortations? The common thread is that it has its aim on loving and protecting and serving God's beloved as God's beloved. So we are to imitate God as God's beloved with the goal of loving and protecting and serving his other beloved. You see how these commands here necessarily involve us as a community? Your imitation of God as his beloved child is to have everything to do with loving, protecting, and serving God's beloved. And this is so just like Jesus, isn't it? So just like Jesus. There he goes again, that Christ who's given himself up, who has died on the cross, given himself up for other people. He goes on and tells his people to give up their lives for others, building them up, not sinning against them. So just like Jesus, our head, and we are his body. You know, your pursuit of holiness is supposed to be a pursuit of God, but it is also to bless other Christians. Do you pursue holiness with the, the end goal of not only knowing God, but blessing other Christians? Because that's what undergirds all of these commands here, blessing other Christians. Is your holiness working its way out towards others in this community? Loving, protecting, and serving God's beloved. That's the ultimate aim here. These commands are so thoroughly other, others-focused. So it's not just don't lie. It's not just don't lie. It goes on. It says, speak the truth with your neighbor in 25. And the reason is because we are members of one another. So here what Paul is doing is picking up on the analogy of the body connected to one another as we are ultimately connected to the head that is Jesus. Now, these lies could be all sorts of lies, lies where you protect your own reputation here in this body. For some reason, you might fear. It could be lying about the sin that you really struggle with, or you know, maybe you want to create your reputation. And so to build up the appearance of godliness, maybe you talk about things that you don't really do, or maybe you shade the truth a little bit. Maybe you could be telling lies to make others feel comfortable in their sin. So maybe lies about doctrine or lies about how other people, uh, how God says it's really okay to live a certain way when really it isn't. But if you, Christian, have a tendency to lie. So just think, okay, before you became a Christian, did you have a tendency to lie? You probably have a tendency to lie right now. So, so this could apply to you. If you have a tendency to lie... I pray that you would be reminded of the fact that lies have a nasty habit of revealing truth. Lies have a nasty habit of revealing truth. Now, sure, it might not be immediate, but it is eventual, always eventual. 
And the most exposing truth that it reveals about, or that the thing that it reveals is what and who you really care about, right? That's what a lie reveals. It really reveals what and who you care about. It is yourself. Often, lying is an act of self-preservation. But as a, as a child of God, God wants you committed not to self-preservation, but to this, according to this verse, church preservation. That's the motivation here that he gives. Of course, the grand motivation is be holy for you are holy. God is a God of truth, and so we are to walk in this truth. But in this verse, he talks about uh, aiming for church preservation. So let's just think about one aspect of telling the truth. Let's say you lied or shade the truth in confessing your sins to other people. And I'm not talking about wisely withholding information, perhaps because someone uh, might not be able to handle the sin that you're talking about. Or uh, let's say someone you think you know that somebody has an issue of gossiping and therefore you're withholding truth. That's not the kind of shading the truth that I'm talking about. I'm talking about shading the truth uh, where you deliberately are trying to protect your reputation. You fear being exposed for who you really are. You know this actually threatens the body. If you are here, you want to shade the truth between one another. It, it threatens the body of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it give a false idea as well? Doesn't it give a false idea too about who the people of God really are? People saved by God's grace and in continual need of God's grace? I mean, friend, imagine, a, imagine if all of us just pretended that we were better than we are and therefore never really admitted our true sin. What kind of church community would we be? Just take a moment, right, to imagine if that were happening. What kind of church community would that be? I think we'd be a, a church community more concerned with upholding reputation than forgiveness and reconciliation. We would even be a community of people concerned for jockeying for position of righteousness. We'd be a competitive community rather than a restorative one. It's already just sounding very ugly. We'd be Christians more concerned about not being disgraced than with giving grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In short, we would be exactly like the world. We would claim the grace of the gospel, but be so fearful to actually live in it. That's not a picture of God's beloved, is it? God's beloved who is so secure in the gospel of free grace where Jesus Christ dies on the cross wiping out our sin and the wrath that we deserve so that we might have a perfect relationship with God and know more of it even in this community. Friends, as members of one another, if you're a member of the church, you know, we are called to speak honestly with one another and to use this one example, confess our sins Practical encouragement for you guys who are looking to grow and speaking truth to one another. Um, if you sin in public, so practical exhortation, if you ever sin in public where other people can see this sin, let me encourage you to confess it before those who witness the sin. So not only to those whom you've sinned against directly, but confess it to also the people who have watched you sin. Do you do this? When you sin against a church member, and other church members witness it. Do you do this? To expand the categories, right? If you are a parent and then you sin against your spouse, do you confess your sins 
deliberately in front of your children? Do you seek reconciliation in front of others? I mean, what a lesson it would be, right, to all those who are observing this. They would get a first-hand example, a front-row example of what it looks like to be a Christian in need of God's grace continually. Right? They already know that you're a sinner. So now finally you have the opportunity to admit it and ask for their forgiveness. What a lesson they'd learn because the offended party can also, uh, also can move towards the sinner in forgiveness. Deliberately so. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an opportunity. People observing sins and, and sinners seek reconciliation. What an op- awesome opportunity they have to, to see how the gospel works practically between the people of God. That's what it's like to be beloved of God and seek uh, to speak the truth here. So that's one aspect here. It's life in the kingdom. Life being born again by God. Next, he moves on to the topic of anger. And it's not just, don't be angry. It's, of course, not just individualistic. It's be angry and do not sin. Of course, don't sin against other people. Sinful anger is one of the earliest sins we see in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain killing his brother Abel because of his sinful anger. And then a few chapters later, we see that this sin intensifies, and then there are multiple homicides by this one man named Lamech. I mean, you just turn on the television and it's obvious that we see, we see the evidences of sinful anger uh, in the atrocities of mankind throughout the history of mankind. But in the kingdom of God, it says here that we are have to have nothing to do with it. And you know, what he says here, I think, is, is evidence that anger in itself is not necessarily sinful. Now, there is, in fact, anger that is sinful. So James 1.14 describes how Human anger cannot accomplish the righteousness of God. That's what it says there. But there, but, and there he's talking about sinful anger. But there is an anger that we can have, and I think to a greater and greater degree, never perfectly, but we can have a certain anger that is informed by the righteousness of God. So when you see various atrocities, various injustices, you could actually respond with righteous anger. Now, again, that's never perfect, as motivations are always confused in the sinful world, but nevertheless, part of your anger could actually be righteous anger, just as God's is. You know, it speaks of this plenty of times when it looks upon injustices in the Old Testament, let's say how people are treating the the weak or the foreigners uh, in ways that they ought not to, with hostile attitudes and hearts. The mistreatment of the helpless there. Looks, it says that God looks upon those things with anger. But Paul, he continues on. He says, don't let the sun go do- down on your anger, lest we give opportunity for the devil. So the idea here is that Satan uses bitterness to sow discord between the people of God. So if you are experiencing bitterness towards anybody here, or even other people, even non-Christians, this is an opportunity that Satan takes advantage of. He sees the weak link and he goes after it with his crowbar in order to sow seeds of discord to bring down the people of God. You know, from this verse, people have concluded the general principle that we ought to seek reconciliation with others before going to bed. And overall, I think that's great advice. You know, commentators note that this verse should not be taken literally. Uh, For example, they give give, uh, reason and logic, for example, they say, uh, look, uh, 
at certain places in the world, like in the Arctic Circle, there are places where the sun never sets. So what, is that person justified in their anger for that whole entire 24-hour period or until the sun goes down? No, we're not supposed to take this verse literally. Uh, but nevertheless, it is wise encouragement to settle one's anger or at the very least move towards it. Move towards being uh, having your anger settled before bed. Christians, you know, as we strive to live like God has always wanted his people to live, it helps to know whether or not you actually struggle with anger, doesn't it? Here's a test. Did you grow up picking fights? Whether physically or emotionally? Or even verbally? If you grew up that way before you were converted, you probably wrestle with sinful anger now. For those of you who are shouters, you probably wrestle with sinful anger. If when you get angry, you so want to throw things, even in your heart or in your mind, or if you're cursing in your mind, you struggle with sinful anger. Sinful anger, friends, is dangerous because while it's not hard for others to identify, it sure is hard for us to identify it, isn't it? And not only that, though, to identify and then go on and own it. If you want to know whether you wrestle with sinful anger, friends, I encourage you, go find a trusted advisor, someone that you know loves you, and someone who does not fear you, and say, ask them, and ask them, you know, do you think I struggle with anger? Am I an angry person, right? You see there the key why you need to approach someone that doesn't fear you? You need someone who's not going to lie to you, even if you get angry and want to kill them. They need, you need someone who's going to speak the truth to you, even when you don't like it. So when they say yes, you'll probably want to yell at them. You'll probably want to insult them, maybe throw things at them and mock them. But there you ought to just be quiet and listen. Then move on, own your sinful anger, and then confess it. Be honest with it. Tell someone about it. You know, if you never own it, which I assume is probably some of you because you resist the fact that you are a sinful, you wrestle with sinful anger. If you never own it and forever refuse to confess it, can you just imagine all the years of built up opportunity where Satan is ready with his crowbar to bring down the people of God, to bring down your heart, to pry you away from God as if that were possible. Be angry and do not sin against other people, against the community of God. That's what he says. He, he, next is he's uh, helping us see what exactly this looks like to imitate God. Uh, he, he moves on, don't steal. But of course, Paul has his eye not only on doing good, but doing good in order to love, serve, and protect the church. This is why he goes on and says that Christians should labor there, doing honest work with one's own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here, Christians are to have diligent hands and generous hearts. Christians are to have diligent hands and generous hearts. Or you could very much say diligent hands that lead to generous hearts. You know, work is a very good thing. Some of you guys are probably coming out of a life where uh, you weren't working diligently with your hands, or if you were working diligently with your hands, it certainly wasn't to please God. But friends, it's really help, helpful to know that work is a good thing created even before the sin of man entered into the world. So work itself is not bad. Now, since sin entered into the world, 
we know that work has definitely gotten harder. So God cursed man in the fall. Dust you were made, to dust you will return. Death entered into the world. And also work got harder. So laboring and producing things actually got harder. But work itself is not bad, but good. In working hard, Christians are, to, are uh, they have the opportunity to learn to work as Adam did. Isn't that fascinating? When we learn to work diligently and honestly, we learn to work in the same way that Adam did before he fell. And then ultimately, we learn to work in the same ways that Jesus did and does. He faithfully, diligently fulfilled the Father's will for him. Faithfully, diligently executed the Father's plan without laziness. You didn't see him twiddling his thumbs, thinking like, oh my goodness, i got to die for these people. But with utmost attention, with all of the children that he knew he was dying for, he approached every single day, every single hour, every second of his life. He diligently executed the work the Father gave to him. But again, the fruit of this command isn't only seen in your personal diligence, but in the way you serve the body. Uh, it says there, work diligently in order that you may have something to share with the body, right? Generous hearts. So thievery, I used to steal. Thievery involves taking from others, right? Or mooching, if you're living off the spoils of other people, there you're living off of others. But in the kingdom of God, we care not only about working hard, but also providing for the needs of others. It's the opposite. Outside in the world where, where stealing is normal, inside in the kingdom of God here, we're not only thinking, oh, I want to protect you, but I want to serve you. I want to meet your needs by my diligence here. So when I hear that some of you guys are providing meals to other people who need it, offering hospitality to others, even spending your resources to take care of the pets of other people in the church, that's encouraging. It's encouraging because you are serving in a Christ-like way. And our love towards one another costs you something. Just like Jesus' service to the church. It costs him his blood. Now, you may not be giving your blood, but nevertheless, it does, in fact, cost you something. So, friends, I assume that there are some of you here who feel absolutely spent. Or you look at the opportunities that you can serve other people... And you, you realize your own resource and you feel spent. You spend your energy. Your, you spend your own money. You spend your time. You spend your emotions. And you feel very much how meeting other people's needs is a sacrifice. You know, maybe because people aren't as appreciative as we ought to be. This isn't heaven after all. Maybe because you just have such little reserves. Or maybe because you'd rather just be doing something else, right? You're just straight up selfish. But an effort to encourage you to continue, uh, imagine what our Father in Heaven thinks about us giving ourselves to one another, just like Christ did. Yeah. I, know, I think there's a parable with us as earthly parents or guardians. And even if you don't have children, you can put yourself in this position. You know, if we knew that one of our children was in need, and that our other children had the resources to meet that, that, that need... So if we as parents saw one of our children emptying out her piggy bank again and again and again in order to come to the aid of her other siblings and then to delight in their security and their rescue, would we as parents not 
beam for joy to see these little souls do these things to protect one another? Right, if we do that, imagine that God, I imagine that God would do the same. He looks down upon his people who may have the resources available, emotional, time, financial, the list goes on. And we empty our piggy bank, so to speak, again and again and again to see the deliverance of our brother or sister in Christ. Would not God look upon us and just delight in the fact saying, yes, those are my children. And they're doing exactly what I have called them to do. Does your generosity, friends, does your generosity ever verge into sacrifice? Or are you generous as long as it doesn't cost you very much? Or only when it's convenient? Friends, we are to follow Christ's footsteps who gave himself, shared of himself, in order that others might be delivered and comforted and secured so we are to be hard-working. And we are to be a giving people concerned with meeting the needs of others in the church. That's what's supposed to happen in the kingdom of God where Christ is head and us as his body are displaying his character to the watching world. We give of ourselves again and again and again. He continues to move on. After addressing the hands, Paul moves on to the mouth. And we see how we are to use our speech. He says there in 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, corrupting talk there, you can think of any talk that tears down, whether they be insults, harsh words, words that lack kindness, you know, all this is evil talk. It's rotten talk that tears down. And of course, this is talk that grieves the very Spirit of God. Interesting language there, grieving the Spirit of God, saddening the Spirit of God, who seals us for the day of redemption. We understand grieving, right? Parents who see their children in need, but instead of building up and offering comfort and encouragement with their words, they take the opportunity to tear down and make things worse. But in the Christian life, here the Spirit is what seals us for that day. It is what conveys, the Spirit conveys the heavenly spiritual blessings of the heavenly realities, isn't it? Right? So we possess the Spirit, we possess heavenly realities of the heavenly kingdom now of the people of God. And by the Spirit we are offered comfort and security in Jesus Christ. And so these words spoken of in the Spirit are to do just that, aren't they? We, our words are conduits of the heavenly spiritual blessings, giving grace to those who hear at the right time, always appropriate, as fits the occasion. By giving grace, I think that, that's what, what, or I think he means, you know, just giving encouragement in the Lord, the grace of encouragement, the grace of correction, the grace also of uh, rebuke. And of course, it is speaking the truth, the gospel of grace in love. Are you an encourager? Would those, would your loved ones around you, would they, do they feel particularly encouraged by your speech? As if your speech is a conduit of the heavenly blessings of God. And you here are being used by God in his spirit to give more of this grace. So that they might be, others might be secured and confident in the love of Jesus. Are you an encourager? You know, according to the Bible, there are some Christians who have the spiritual gift of encouragement or exhortation. And the way I think it's helpful to define it here is the unique ability to speak words 
that build up as is fitting to the occasion. As, but as mentioned previously, every Christian, even if you don't have the so-called gift of encouragement, every Christian is to encourage one another, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. So let me encourage you, if you know that people around you don't really feel encouraged by you, or if you know that encouraging words in, in the Lord's truth do not really flow from your mouth, let me encourage you to start by looking for evidences of God's grace in other people's lives. If you want to grow in encouragement, start by looking for God's grace in, uh, in people's lives, or even in this church. Be on the lookout for how you see God's Spirit working in your brother and sis- brothers and sisters' lives. And then remind them of the fact that that is actually taking place. Would they not feel secure knowing that they indeed have the Spirit, that they have been sealed for the day of redemption? That they have the promise of the great inheritance that God will come and fulfill the rest of it as you encourage them that God's grace is really working in their lives, growing them more in Christ's gentleness, Christ's kindness, Christ's love and patience, growing, you see all those things, growing in the people right in front of you. So remind them, yes, the Spirit really is indeed working in these ways. How are you at using your words? If you have a critical heart and a critical mouth, I pray we would remember that life is short. We have a limited amount of breath and a limited amount of words. How will you give account for yours? Moving on then from the mouth, lastly, Paul says, don't be unkind, but be loving. Don't be unkind, but be loving. Look there in 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I think these verses, in this section at least, um, most strongly go after the heart disposition towards others in the kingdom of God. This here aims right at the heart. What's your heart like towards other people? You know, if we were to put, all, put away these forms of hostility, you know, what then are we to do? It says there, we are to move towards others in kindness, with a tender heart, that is compassion, while forgiving one another, just as, it says, just as God in Christ forgave you. We've got to remember the context here. This is difficult stuff to accomplish for people whose bad blood went back centuries. Remember, Paul is writing to a church whose people had great animosity for one another, ethnic divides, religious divides. These walls had been built up, had been built up. So then here, you see how important it is for these people who are now one in Jesus Christ to put these things away. Now, in the kingdom of God, they were to be acting in grace towards one another, just as God in Christ has acted in grace towards them. That's why he brings up forgiveness there. What better model of laying aside hostility could there be for the Christian than to look directly at God towards the sinner, God's forgiveness towards the sinner. I mean, no division goes so deep, does it not, than a sinful man's division and hostility against God, their creator. You know, forget centuries-old divisions between men and men. Here we got the ultimate division, man against God. Of course, the Bible says that man is hostile towards God, at enmity, hatred towards God, in our natural state, in our sin. 
which is why Paul points us back towards the forgiveness that God gives to us. We now, we receive this forgiveness and therefore we are to give this forgiveness towards others. I wonder if you are a bitter person. Are you a bitter person? Holding grudges against other people. But given Christ's pardon of you, how he alleviated your punishment and freed you from your sin, and not only that though, but decided of his own free will to set his eternal love on you, you realize that doing anything different than that is not in line with God's grace in Christ? That's why bitterness is not to be seen in the kingdom of God. You know, if we as Christians persisted in bitterness and anger and hostility, wouldn't that reveal a disconnect between the gospel and your heart? There's a parable of Jesus that illustrates this in Matthew 18. We're not going to look through it uh, too much, but there's a parable of the wicked servant in Matthew 18. And to illustrate this point, Jesus tells a story about how this servant owed an unimaginable debt to his master. The equivalent of today would be a, a, a day worker, a laborer owing $7 billion, let's say, to somebody. So, of course, the dude can't pay it off. But the servant pleads with his master. He knows he is in debt. He, he recognizes this. And he pleads with his master to forgive him. And by the master's grace, according to his mercy, the master relieves him of all of his debt. And, of course, the dude can't pay for it. So it's on the master's shoulders to, just, to take on the debt, to swallow it himself. And what happens is, you know, the guy goes out and he's rejoicing. But the second he goes out, he goes and he finds this other servant who owes him a hundred days wages. Right? Compared to seven billion dollars, a hundred days wages is nothing. You commit yourself to basically a third of the year to working for this person, it's gone. It's an amount that actually can be paid back. And when this lower servant falls to his knees and begs for the debt to be relieved, the servant, showing all of his wickedness and evil, throws this guy in jail. And you know how Jesus concludes this story? He says it like this. He says the master calls the servant back in and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the master actually, he goes and puts the servant back into prison to pay off the debt the servant knows he cannot pay off. Now the point is not that if you're forgiven, God's going to throw you back into jail. That's not the point here. He goes on to say, how often should we forgive our brothers? An infinite amount of times. Because we ourselves have been forgiven an infinite amount of time. The Christian need not cling to a record of debts committed against us because our record of debt to God has been wiped out entirely. So out of love experienced from God as God's beloved, we, when we have, when we're tempted to hold on to that bitterness, we have the opportunity to set it aside and say, look, I am God's beloved. You want to know a little bit of what this love is like? Let me show you. I'm going to wipe it out again and again and again. And so we as Christians ought to forgive as we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So you see there this model where God moves towards sinners in Christ. So we too, when we approach this body here, when people sin against us, we too can move towards the one who sinned against us with this gospel love, seeking to forgive as we have been forgiven. So if you struggle with bitterness in that moment of weakness, in that moment of temptation, remember God's mercy towards you as he has wiped your slate clean 
Ought you not also to wipe others clean as well? To forgive them out of the forgiveness that we have received. When he moves on there and he concludes basically to walk in love as Christ loved us. Here we kind of just go, we're right back to where we began. The overarching theme here that drives all of this kingdom ethic, life in the kingdom of God with Christ as head and with we being his citizens. It's the last section that Paul draws the inference that we started with, 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as God's beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The inference here is to be imitators of God, right? Therefore, be imitators of God. You know, there are a number of therefores, even in the beginning of this section, there in 25, it's therefore, having put away all falsehood, having put away our old self, and having put on the new self. So here he's making a similar conclusion, wrapping it up. Therefore, be imitators of God. Walk in love. It's amazing here how he points us back immediately to the death of Jesus as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, in the Old Testament, what, undergird, what undergirded all of Israel's life, central to all of Israel's life, were these offerings. And so there were daily offerings in the morning, there were daily, there were daily offerings in the evening, and then, there, of course, there was the once-a-year sacrifice of atonement, the atoning sacrifice where the priest would bring in the blood and sprinkle upon everything into the Holy of Holies, symbolizing that there Sins have been washed away through the slain lamb, the slain goat. So it's awesome that here Paul points us back to the thing that undergirded the Old Testament Israel, the life of Old Testament Israel. And here he says that Jesus' life, his act of obedience in offering himself up on the cross, is the ultimate offering and sacrifice of obedience. It is that that undergirds the New Testament people of God. And so when we walk, just as Jesus walked, offering up our lives as a sacrifice to God, as it says in Romans chapter 12, so we walk in love. So we carry out, we fulfill the very things that is to undergird the New Testament church's life. And really it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to imitate God. Doing what God's people have always done. This is really what undergirds, it's the love of Jesus that undergirds the life of the people of God as God's beloved. If you're visiting with us and know yourself to be a non-Christian, it's important to underscore that the ways Christians are to live are distinctly Christian here. As Christ has loved and served, so we as Christians are to love and serve. And all of these commands, right, they find their motivation in the gospel, don't they? So please, if you're visiting with us again, you know yourself not to be a Christian, do not leave here thinking that we just simply teach morals that are not rooted to the person of Jesus, or maybe that somehow we teach morals that are merely related to Jesus because he's our greatest example. Actually, it's so much more, Jesus is so much more than the greatest example. But he's the one through his death on the cross, enables us, through the pouring out of the Spirit of God, he's the one who enables us to live like he does. These are all distinctly Christian. We enter into relationship with God through his blood, and we are actually sanctified, that is made holy because of his blood as well. You know, in relation to these attributes, these are very worthy to be appreciated, aren't they? Honesty, don't be sinfully angry, Diligent, 
generous, encouraging, kind, compassionate. And then, of course, the overarching banner of love. It's interesting that without an immovable standard of love and truth, love and truth are just lost in the wind, aren't they? Without the immovable standard of love and truth, love and truth are lost in the wind. We can never fully grab hold of it. Left up to every individual to determine for himself or herself what love and truth really is. So what's that? Seven billion options? Without the immovable standard of love, love remains forever elusive. But thank God he has revealed to us the supreme standard of love in Jesus Christ in the gospel. 1 John 4.11 says this, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So friends, if you're looking here at the, the kingdom of God, the ethic that's supposed to undergird all of his citizens, and you say, yes, I do appreciate certain aspects of that. You know, these things here, we've got to be pointed back to Jesus Christ who effects these things in us in the very first place. If you are striving for reconciliation with your family, maybe the family that you're going to see on Thursday, if you're striving for reconciliation with your friends, with your neighbors, you know, that is great, that's fantastic. But in order for us to truly see and strive for reconciliation with man, we need to see the standard. We need to see reconciliation that God brings to sinful man in his son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we're supposed to imitate him as Christians. Everything is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, if you appreciate these characteristics, you know, friends, that if you don't believe in God, you appreciate something of a glimmer of God. Appreciate the source. Repent of your sins, turn from them and believe and you will be saved. And God will work in you a lasting change to bring about this purity and this holiness that pleases your very maker. And so you too can know this reconciliation. Be reconciled to your creator. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we are your beloved. We thank you that there is security as your beloved because Christ's blood is that strong. We thank you that there is confidence in our salvation because Christ's promises are that strong. And so, Lord, we pray that we would embrace the call to love in recognition that we have been designed to love. Father, help our hearts where we fear Maybe we want to protect our own reputation. Maybe we have a tendency to look after our own selves because we know without a shadow of a doubt that at least in, maybe in our human relationships, no one else would. Or maybe even we have sat underneath authority in such an abusive way where we think actually that no one else desires our comfort. No one else desires our security. But Father, we pray that there is the one true Father. That is you, our Father in heaven. Father, we pray that we would know and have great confidence that you desire to exercise all of your authority with our best interests in mind. We thank you, Father, that you are a perfect, loving, gracious, merciful Father who has shown compassion to sinners, shown mercy to sinners, and has saved us because of your great love for us. Lord, teach us to be confident in this love. And so in this very community of First Baptist, 
Lord, learn to walk in the ways that your people are to be known to walk in. Father, we pray that this love would so mark our community so that those watching, those outside of our body, would be so curious to know why we are different. Even in our sins, Lord, we pray that we would humble ourselves and seek reconciliation in love and so display that we actually can know this gospel love. Teach us, we pray, to walk in the very footsteps of Jesus Christ who bought us with his own blood because of his love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.